Let's open our Bibles, if we would, to the book of Luke. The book of Luke. Yes, curveball. We have been running through the book of Romans, and we'll return there not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, November 21st. That's when we will dive into Romans 8, the great 8. So hopefully that's an encouragement for you to be here the Sunday before Thanksgiving, um, for there is no condemnation whether you're there or not, but that's the passage we'll be dealing with. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. But today and next week, we're going to just take a couple of, um, a couple of passages and an opportunity to really try to focus in on what God is doing uh, here in our church and what uh, he wants to prepare our hearts for. So uh, I am thankful that we're able to be in the book of Luke and we're going to be looking at Luke 19, Luke 19, a somewhat unconventional passage. But we will deal with the unconventional by also running to Colossians chapter 1. So um, this passage is also called the parable of the ten minas. Not M-I-N-N-O-W-S, but M-I-N-A-S. The parable of the ten minas. And so I would like to read this passage in its entirety. Verse 11 through 27. Pray and then we'll dive in. The word of God says this, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because two reasons, he was near to Jerusalem. This is right before he's about to die. He was near to Jerusalem and because number two, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So now he tells a story. Verse 12. And so he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minutes and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Well, when the man returned, verse 15, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business, the thing he had asked him to do. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mena has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came to him saying, Lord, your mena has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are, over, you are to be over five cities. And then he came to another saying, Lord, here is your manna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And so this man said to the man who put it in a handkerchief, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him, and give it to the one who has ten minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. And then here's the warning. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, your word is precious and sometimes mysteriously so. And so right now we ask that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of your word and that you would shape our hearts by it. I pray that Father you would make us faithful in the very little. And I pray that you would produce a hundredfold through our little lives. We want you to get glory. We want your church to reflect your beauty and your love. We want the nations 
people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, whether they are located here in Raleigh or in North Carolina or in the Americas or to the ends of the earth, we want your glory to be treasured. We want people to worship you. And so keep us on your mission. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's our last Sunday here. And I just want to say God has been at work. God has been at work. We have seen him sustain this church now for over 16 years. An amazing grace. There are many churches that do not last this long. And it is a grace upon grace upon grace that he has sustained us for over 16 years. And now it's almost as if we've had this trek and it's a beautiful mountain. And we've climbed this mountain and we're almost to the top. And now we're at the top of the mountain and we peer over only to see there are many more mountains to come. There's a vista before us that is more breathtaking than the mountain we were climbing. There's something before us that is far more beautiful that God has in store for us. There's more glory to behold, more people to love, more ways we can build each other up. More disciples to be made here in Raleigh and more disciples to be made among the nations. We see our God is still at work. It's like a new beginning, but it's also kind of the same as our old beginning, of which very few of you were here for. <laughs> but we say this as a church. We exist to be and make disciples who treasure Jesus above everything. And we really want to love each other well. And we want to love our neighbor no matter where we're located. And we want to love the nations with our time and our resources. This is the mission of our church. We exist to be and make disciples who treasure Christ, love the church, love the city, love the world. It's not just a slogan. It's why we exist. We believe it's biblically faithful. And it's what we've been called to do as a people. But there is also a newness. That's the sameness. There's also a newness. And we have seen him now give us this opportunity to almost kind of reignite the flame of mission. Remind ourselves, what are we about? We've seen him help us refocus our vision on what it means to love the church. More work to be done. To reprioritize our lives around pursuing knowing Jesus above every other relationship. That is what this time is for. We as a people are about treasuring Christ above all. We are not 554 East Target Street. That's where you are, if you didn't know that. And those of you who are online, that means this building. We are not a building. We are a people on a mission, and a building is a tool. And so we are not shaken by a move. We are actually excited and stirred up to remember we're about something bigger than ourselves together. We're a people. A people on a mission to reach our neighbors with the gospel that God promises powerful enough to change lives. That's what we need. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have it all together. In fact, God has chosen to use messy people to accomplish his great ends. But he loves us and he calls us valuable and precious and he promises to use us for the glory of his name. So there is excitement before us. This is the God who has made us. And this is not simply a hope, but it's a reality. And he has said, we are a people of prayer. He says, I want my people to be a house of prayer for all peoples. That's who we are. We're meant to be a multi-ethnic praying people. That's us. That's who the church is supposed to be. It's not a, an agenda. It's not a, a social tactic. It is who the church is. It's what heaven will be one day. And we get to be a part of that and fight for it here on this earth. And so we have seen him answer prayer. We have seen him answer prayer. This church began on four years of prayer. I remember a dear member of this church, still a member, Barbara Thomas, 
When I met her, she told me she had been praying for four years for a church to be planted. And here we come. She says, can you come over to the house and share a little bit about what's going on? Little did I know she would have 12 people there with name tags. And I was like, good night. What am I getting into? But we did it. This church began on prayer. And friends, after four or so years of just praying that God would help us be able to sell this building, we were able to sell this building for four times what we paid for. And he granted us property in Southeast Raleigh before this massive economic boom so that we could afford it and we could be debt free prior to selling this building. That is Jesus. It is not ingenuity on the leadership's part. Let's just be really clear. We had one aim. We want to love people and we sought to do it and God did what he did. And then he blocked us from getting into Chavis Community Center and the many other spaces that we tried to get into. But it wasn't for lack of trying to get into all of those spaces. A lot of attempts to get into all kinds of other spaces. Why? Why barriers? Why months and months and months? And why delay after delay after delay? And so the Southeast Raleigh High School might open their doors. I don't know this to be true, but when I've talked to neighbors, they, they are saying things like, I didn't know the school even did that kind of thing. I don't know that a church has ever met in this school. But whether it has or not, because of some of the financial crunch that we are hearing about in Wake County Public Schools, and because of COVID, they're open for us to come. And so next Sunday, Lord willing, we will meet in Southeast Raleigh High School because we've seen answers to prayer. We've seen answers to prayer and that God extended our stay here one week so that we didn't have to move last week. Which would have been very difficult. <laughs> and we're able to move today. And I just tell you, friends, I don't know if you watched the weather like I did this week, but it was supposed to downpour. 70% chance is the news outlets I saw on Saturday and Sunday today, and I see sun outside. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. I had one guy who is... Um, being trained right now to go overseas, he emailed and he says, I am praying that the Lord keeps away the rain. For all of you who pray, the Lord has heard our prayers. And dear friends, this Sunday, there was a, or this week, there was a faithful team, two guys, Sloan Schuler, Kyle Parmley, who came here and removed all the sound equipment that was hanging from the ceiling. That's why the ceiling tiles are like this. For those of you online, they're all over the place. <laughs> they pulled it all down. We had a team on Monday, 15 or so people that moved all the chairs out of here into where we're going to be storing things, only to find out that the weather was supposed to be really bad and really cold. So we said, we're going to move back in. Now what do we do? But what I saw God do is that he allowed us to do a dry run today for what next Sunday is going to be with the equipment that we couldn't do the dry run with before because it was hanging in the ceiling. And I thank God for John Wisely and for Nick Wisely who came early this morning to try to get a projector working on a screen because it was up there and now it was down here. This is kind of the setup we're going to have at the school. We'll have a center projector. I'll have to be off to the left and people will be off to the left and the right so it can shine on the screen. See my hand? There it is. So we'll work on all of that. Friends, the Lord is at work. He's answering prayer. And I just thank God for the faithfulness of his people to labor so diligently through this transition. So now we're peering over the mountain. And there are vistas ahead that we need each other for. It's a mission. And so I wanted to give some attention to our time now to what in the world are we supposed to be consuming ourselves with in this next transition in this new beginnings that also is kind of the same beginning wherever you are we know this truth this one truth that God is with us we won't face it alone and that's enough we won't ever be alone. There will not be one moment in your individual life, nor one moment in our church's corporate life where, that we will have to face something alone. 
we will always be accompanied by his presence and what he calls sufficient grace. We'll have what we need. And that's enough. And we do know this. The church is essential as a part of his plan to make us more like Jesus. It's not an add-on. Sometimes we wish it could be. Sometimes doing church feels very inconvenient. But it is what makes us more like Jesus. It's essential. And so, on this last Sunday in one space, but in many senses, a first Sunday in this new journey, our message is similar to Moses' journey as he was encouraging the people to go and to enter the promised land. Moses' message is this, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or be in dread of enemies, of what you don't know is coming. Don't be afraid. Why? Because it is the Lord who goes with you. It's the Lord. The creator of the ends of the earth, the triune God, the one who sent his only son to die in the place of sinners, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He goes with us. And then Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you. Do not fear or be discouraged. So, for some of you, as you look at this transition, you look at it with excitement. For others of you, you look at it with sadness. Not really looking forward, but looking backwards at loss or what we might lose. Some of us look at it with indifference because we're so overwhelmed with what's going on in our lives currently. But wherever we are, we're going to go forward as a church knowing that God is with us. And so, the main emphasis is what are the essentials for the journey together? What are the essentials? The essentials for the journey together. What is foundational for each one of our lives every day? And that's where I think Luke 19 helps us. What is essential for our lives as we face this journey together. Now, you have to admit, when I read it, you might have thought that's kind of a bizarre last passage in this building. It's just kind of odd, right? Okay, I, I get that. I'm with you. So let's make sure you understand the story and let's go with it from there. The story is this in Luke 19. Remember the two things. Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem which is where he what? He dies. So he knows he's going to Jerusalem where he will be rejected by people, namely the Jews, also Gentiles, but by the Jews, and he'll be crucified. He knows that that's going to happen. And he's telling this parable because the second reason is that the kingdom of God, people suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, that there was going to be this triumphant kind of end to all Roman or foreign rule, everything that was oppressive, the kingdom of God would come now, and the message is the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, but it's going to come in deposits until he comes back again. So it won't come all immediately, you're going to have to be about something while you wait for him to come. You follow this? This is the point of the passage. So now he goes and he tells a story. There's a nobleman, far country. He's going to get all of his country. And while he does, he's got 10 people that he sends out to engage in business. And he gives them one minute. That's three months wages. So let's just say for round numbers, that's 20 grand. Okay. Now what he does is he says, engage in business. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go do my thing. When I come back, we'll see what the business is that you've engaged in. So he comes back and he goes to the first person. There were 10. We actually only hear about three in this passage. But the one he comes back to, it says this. Look at verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna, 20 grand, has made 10 minna. 
$200,000. Okay? It's a pretty good return on investment. And then he says, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in, and Luke uses a special word, only used here, for a very little, a small amount. I'm sorry, where I come from, 20 grand ain't no small amount. Three months wages is no small amount. What's it small compared to? Compared to not only what it made, but the reward that was given. It's small. It's not small to the person who is dealing in the money, but it's small compared to the return and to the reward. What was the reward? Well done, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. 10 cities. Okay, your 200 grand just turned into Raleigh, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, you know, Chapel Hill, Durham. Like, all of a sudden, you've just got the triangle and beyond. Okay, like, okay, something just happened. I don't know what, but that, that's a good deal. And then he goes on. Somebody invested one, turned into five, give you five cities. And then somebody says, hey, I know you to be a severe man, so I'm going to hide it under my pillow. He says a handkerchief. I'm going to hide it under my pillow because I know you're a severe man. And he says, well, if you knew I was a severe man, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? And he says, because you didn't do what I asked you to do. Because you didn't accept my rule over you, what you have will be taken from you and given to those who have been faithful. And then we get the punchline in verse 27. For these are enemies of mine. Why? They didn't want me to rule over them. They didn't want me to reign over them. And the consequence for all those, and now remember why he's telling the story, all those in Jerusalem who do not bow the knee to King Jesus will experience a horrible ending. One of great treachery and despair. We know it is hell. This is the thrust of the passage. But now, if that's the main point, the main point is all those who reject Jesus, and I just lay this out here, if any of you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you to know Him to be good. For Him to be the answer to every longing in your heart. For Him to be enough to satisfy you in all the shame and the guilt and the weight that you carry, all the burdens that are on your back, the answer to getting rid of those is not to work harder or to be better than your neighbor. The answer is surrender yourself to Jesus who did everything for you. Sometimes I wish the message was do this kind of action because it seems manageable and tangible and a little easier to make myself right with God. And I could just go to church a certain number of times and that would make me right. That's not how it works. It's just not enough because the standard is perfection. And every single person on the planet is falling short, including me. And so the message Jesus gives, I mean, you've got to understand, he says, at one time, he says they will experience slaughter. And at the other time, he's weeping over the very city that he's getting ready to walk into because his heart is broken over people who reject him. And so they, what does he do for people who reject him? He dies for them. This is the good news. Don't stay distant. Don't try to fix yourself up. Believe the good news. Jesus did what you couldn't do. He died in your place. He lived the perfect life you could not live. And he was raised from the dead three days later. And he says, trust me. Just give your life to me and I will be with you forever. And so I encourage you. Any of you who don't know Jesus. I want you to experience his loving grace today. So turn from your sin and trust in him. That's the passage. But there's also a, pa there's also a point that I want to illustrate that takes us where we're going to go. It goes back to verse 17. When he says, and he said to him, well done, good servant. 
because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. What is essential for our journey together moving forward? What is the spiritual version of be faithful in a very little? What does it mean for us to be faithful in a very little? Well, I was watching um, a documentary kind of thing by the great scholar Eli Manning. And he's a quarterback, was a quarterback for the New York Jets. And he was interviewing Nick Saban. And I've said this before, as a Tennessee guy, and they won last night, yes, very thankful. But as a Tennessee guy, I usually don't want to talk a lot about Nick Saban, but I'm going to anyway, because this is helpful. So Nick Saban, Eli Manning looks at him and he says, can you tell me what you mean by the phrase, trust the process? This is his whole coaching philosophy. Trust the process. And he says, well, what I mean is that we've got to stop looking at the scoreboard. We've got to stop focusing on outcomes. What we must focus in on is what we must are responsible to do in each and every play. And the outcomes will work on themselves. We have to be faithful with what is right before us. Because we cannot control the ultimate outcome. What we can control is what we do on each and every down. And it's the responsibility of every single player to do their job and to do it well each and every play. And if we do that, the outcomes will take care of themselves. And I was so instructed by that. I do believe that's exactly what he is pressing in on in this passage right here in Luke 19. That we, to be spiritually faithful, we cannot control outcomes. This guy was not engaging in business so he would get 10 cities. He was engaging in business because he wanted to do what the leader, the one who was ruling over him, had instructed him to do. And so he was faithful with what he had been given each and every day. Or, in football, play. Or, in spiritual life with each and every moment. The lesson. The lesson here is, is that we cannot control outcomes. We cannot control one another. Do I get an amen? Yes, you can't. Try with all your might. You cannot control your neighbor. You can't control your spouse. You ultimately cannot control the heart of your children. You can't control outcomes. You can't control if your marriage will be happy or not. You can't control if you'll have believing kids. You can't guarantee if your friendship will be healthy. You can't guarantee an amount of income. You can't guarantee that you'll get a certain job. You can't guarantee the size of this church. You can't guarantee the conversion of an individual in your family or your neighborhood. You cannot guarantee the outcomes. What you can do is be faithful. You can be faithful with what God has given you. And we can trust Him to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. It's actually really freeing. Because so much of us really want the outcomes to go our certain way, but we forget we don't know what's best for us. We only see one small little hair's width of this entire universe. Why in the world would we want to try to control that? God sees it all and he knows what is best. And he says, be faithful in the very few things and I'm going to take care of the rest. The reward will be greater than you ever imagined. And most importantly, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. You will never face a day alone. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because the Lord is with you wherever you go. So what are the spiritually little things, those foundationally essential things that we must make a part of our life while we wait for the coming of Jesus and while we seek to be the church that he's called us to be? What are those spiritually little things? I was journaling and just praying. I was battling with some anxiety. And the Lord just struck me and I wrote down this phrase. And it says this, Father, every morning 
I need to be reminded of these three things. My heart is Christ's. My home is heaven. And my mission until then is making disciples. My heart is Christ's. My home is heaven. And my mission until then is making disciples. What are the little things? It's that. It's giving my heart wholly to Jesus. Day by day. It's making sure that this earth doesn't have too strong of a foothold. On my life and my desires. And it's being about his mission. Of viewing everything about making disciples. And so I just want to spend a few minutes basically applying Luke 19 to our lives. What does it look like? What does it look like to be the people that God has made us to be together to make? What are the essentials that we need to go forward? It is that our heart is Christ, our home is heaven, and that our mission is making disciples. And so I just want to take each one real, real quickly and... I want to start here. I went to um, our pastors and wives retreat for the TCT network, over 30 some odd churches uh, in the network. And I think we had maybe 25 or so, 23 or so represented um, at the retreat a couple of weeks ago. My, my weeks get kind of blurred. It's around there. And as we went, one dear brother preached from Colossians chapter one. So I encourage you to turn there, Colossians chapter one. Verses three, verses three through five. And as you look at it, Colossians chapter one, hear these words. Paul's writing to this little church and he says, we always thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Why? Why are the prayers so filled with thanksgiving for this little church? It's because here's what they have heard of. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this guy who was preaching, my friend Nathan Knight, he's a pastor of a church in D.C., he said, that's not how that passage is supposed to read. And I totally felt it. Like you would expect. I've heard of your love for all the church. And that you are really longing to be in heaven because you believe in Jesus. That's probably what you would think. If you believe in Jesus, you love people and your hope is somewhere other than here. That's not what he says. He says that because your hope is not here, it does something. The more you think on and foster a longing to be with Jesus and say your home is not here, what happens is your faith grows and your love for all the saints increase. It's weird. It's like, the longing for heaven and the hope not here on this earth causes the waters of your trust and the love for one another to just do this and to keep rising and to keep rising. Do you notice three words? Anybody see them? Faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love. I encourage you. Just do a little study. I mean, phones are amazing now. Your Bible app can help you find it. You know, just hit that little magnifying glass thing and do a search, faith, hope, love, and you'll find all these passages that come up. What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us? Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 13? What's it say? So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is? Love. Why does he say that? That's a little different than what we just read. It's like the grounding of our love and our faith or in our hope. All of a sudden you begin to see these kind of all weaving together. It's, it's three cords making a rope, right? One strand, one rope. Now, 
Why is the greatest love? I believe because it's the fruit of the other two. If love is evident in your life, it will be showing and revealing that you're trusting the Lord and that your hope is somewhere else. If your hope were fully on this earth, you would not want to consider others better than yourself. You'd want to do for yourself all the time. Faith, hope, and love. But I really encourage you. Romans chapter 5, if, you know, we're in Romans. Faith, hope, and love. Galatians chapter 5, faith, hope, and love. Ephesians chapter 4, faith, hope, and love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, faith, hope, and love. It's there. But what we're looking at right now is Colossians chapter 1. He looks at this church and he says, I thank my God because I've heard that you really trust Jesus and that you're loving each other really well. And the reason that's happening is because your hope is not on what you can hold, but your hope is where you're going to be face to face with Jesus one day. That's instructive for me. Let's look at our hope in heaven. If that's what's going to give birth to these other things, where can our hope be? First Timothy tells us our hope can be in our money. We can all feel it. Get ready to experience Christmas. Okay, good night. Like Friday sales, they keep getting earlier and earlier. You know, it's like what used to be the week of is now the month of. And, I'm, you know, I'm assuming it'll be October soon. You know, when it eats backwards and, you know, all this stuff. We are being bombarded with ads and discounts. We're being told by many different types of things that we need these things. And then we have people we love that we want to give things to. And all that's fine. I'm not going to be here to call evil this whole season. But here's what I want to be careful with. Is that we can get so consumed with those things. We can forget where our home is. It's just a reality. We can become so consumed with the materials that we hold or that we purchase for others that we lose sight of where our real home is. Our hopes can be in earthly health. Our hopes can be in people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear that? If Jesus is only good for this earth, we're in sad shape. Which is what many people say. You just have crafted religion in order to make yourself find some type of comfort in the midst of our earthly sorrows. It's far more than this. Jesus is not just a Coke machine that we put in to comfort us in the midst of our pain. Jesus is someone who is always with us. He's our Lord. He's our King. He's our treasure. And so everything is about Him here, and we will see Him face to face. This is why it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because He's been raised from the dead, we have a hope far beyond this earth. Far beyond this earth. You go to the sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Peter uses as his one of his primary texts, Psalm 16. And here's what you hear him say. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Here's the phrase. My flesh also will dwell in hope. How does hope come? Look at what he says. Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That is to hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Means you'll raise Him from the dead. Yes, there is resurrection in the Old Testament. You'll raise Him from the dead. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. You know what is so beautiful about the time when we see Jesus face to face? It's Jesus. And we'll see Him face to face. You know how he describes change on this earth? He says, when you look at Jesus through the word, beholding Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, I think it is. It says, and by beholding Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Just think about that. 
You sit and spend time in the Bible, and as you understand Jesus, he is transforming you. He's literally changing you from the inside out through his word. And that's right now while we are seeing through a glass dimly. It's like we're looking through a carnival mirror and we're still able to see enough of Jesus that all of a sudden we're changed. What is it going to be when we see him face to face and there's no more filter? It's just Jesus. That is the hope of the people of God. And that's why Romans can say we rejoice in that because we'll see him. We'll see him. It is glory upon glory and his presence is the joy, the weight of our hope. The bottom of our hope, the gravity of our gladness, the hope underneath every other hope laid up for us in heaven is that we'll be with Jesus one day face to face. But the great news is, church, we do not go alone. Moses was able to say to the people ready to enter the promised land, be strong, be courageous. Don't be afraid of anything that might come your way because it is the Lord who goes with you. What is essential for us as we walk this journey together? It is that we focus in on, we do the hard work of hoping in heaven. It means that what we're doing here is preparing one another for heaven. We're preparing one another to not act as if suffering doesn't exist, but seeing every disappointment as an echo of why we were created, in C.S. Lewis's words, for another world. C.S. Lewis says, if you find anything in this world that leaves you longing or without satisfaction, maybe it means you were made for another world. And you have been. We have been. Oh, dear friends, I just pray. I pray that our hope is in heaven. And I just, I was so encouraged by this, I'm just going to give it to you as a gift. Um, Charles Spurgeon. Man, I'm so blessed by this guy. He, he's dead. But um, I like reading about it. He's really good. He talked about this. He said, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, am I willing to be burned at the stake for Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm not. And some of you, when you think about your hope being in heaven, you're terrified of that portal. You're terrified of that moment. Will my faith last? And his granddaddy was a preacher. And his grandfather said, Son, you don't have the grace for that right now because you're not facing that. But here's what I promise you. When you face it, or whatever else you might face, you will have all the grace you need for that moment. So you might not feel like you can handle any more suffering at all. That's okay. Because you have the grace for what you need right now. But I promise you this. I can say it from testimony and I can say it from scripture. His grace is sufficient and it'll be there when you need it. It'll be there. I promise you. So dear friends, the hope of heaven is fostered because the one that we will see in heaven is going to be with us right now forward. We're not going alone. No matter whether we're in this building or some other place. Dear friends, I would love to keep going, but I'm going to honor our time. So we have two more. The heart is Christ. And I'm just going to give you a verse. A verse that I pray many mornings is this. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I just tell you, I wake up with a divided heart a lot. It's a heart that thinks projects sometimes are more important than people or thinking that things lay on my shoulders more than they really do or think that I'm going to fail at something that's in front of me and so I might be captured by fear. Or I might want the praise of people more than I really should. All of these things take my heart and they just begin to chop them up and divide them. And I feel like I have a divided heart. And so our aim is what George Mueller says. He says this, I make it of first importance that every morning I seek to make my soul happy in the Lord. Dear friends, it doesn't come natural. 
I don't know who told you it does, but it doesn't. Sometimes we wake up and it's easier to get there than others. But you're in for a world of hurt if you think you can coast on your goodness or on a past relationship with Jesus. You will grow weary. You will grow fatigued. You will grow more anxious. You will grow more critical. You will begin to blame other people for things that you're feeling deep inside and the shame that you feel. And we've all experienced it. We've all experienced hurt from people only to turn around and be those that are hurting people. We've experienced shame and guilt only to be those who have created shame and guilt on other people. Shame people shame. Hurt people hurt. That's what happens. The only way to undo that cycle is to remember one thing. You are loved. Because loved people love. You're loved. In all of your mess, in all of your sin, you're loved. How do I know I'm loved? Because Christ came. And this is love. Not that you do for him, but that he did for us. He gave up his very life for us. Dear friends, we have been coasting too long on past relationships or past experiences or on somebody else's faith. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you something right now. It's a gift. It's called my presence. Sit with me. Sit with me. Come. Weary, heavy burden. And stop trying to carry it yourself. I love you. And when you know you're loved, you don't have to prove anything to anybody else. Free people, free people. Bound people, bind people. Shamed people, shame people. Loved people, love people. This is the economy of God. I want you to know you're loved. I want you to know you're loved. And that will only happen when you take Jesus up on his offer. Each and every day with a divided heart. To sit still with him and say, take my heart. It's a mess. Take it. I want you. And when that happens, day by day, you grow secure in his love for you. Then you love. And you make your mission making disciples. That's what you do. What's the passage that teaches us that? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know it, don't you? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto us, to you. Now go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even in the end. I was talking to one friend, his name is Chip Bugner, and he said, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but Matthew writes the book of Matthew with the end in mind. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, well, take the Great Commission. Let's look at it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And yet the promise at the beginning of Matthew is that a ruler is going to come from Bethlehem to rule over the people. And then you just go down the line. You see, Jesus was baptized and now he's commanding us to baptize. You see, teaching them all things to command and after he's been tempted and he's been given the opportunity to take authority for himself without suffering. Jesus says no, because God's plan is to have suffering in order to get authority. So he goes and he suffers, he gets authority, and he teaches everybody in the area of Galilee, which is where the Great Commission is given. And then he says, and lo, I'm with you always. And what does he say when Jesus is told to come? His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Why is that important? Why do I believe it? Because it means that the whole book of Matthew is meant to not just cause you to love Jesus, but to be about the mission of Jesus, which is making disciples. You want to know what those foundational essentials are? Hope in heaven, giving your heart to Christ, and being on Christ's mission. That's what we must be about. It's not for some, it's for all of us. The whole book is shaping you to be disciple makers. So, dear friends, with that mindset, that mindset of disciple making, then what we realize is that our marriages, they're not simply an opportunity for romance and friendship, but helping each other see the presence of Jesus. 
and to love the beauty of Jesus and to live for the glory of Jesus. Parenting is not simply raising good contributors to society, but it's making disciples. School is not just good grades or a good job. It is the opportunity for God to use your life to reflect aspects of his character to the world that they might see and find his forgiveness and acceptance, that they might have a hope that will never disappoint. We've got to start seeing our whole lives as a reflection of the Savior we follow. And that's how we'll make disciples together. So friends, with the phone ringing, it means it's time. I appreciate that. I do. I do. I need that and I take it. I take it. We're going to be done. I'm going to pray. Be faithful in the few things. Be faithful in the few things. Which is, my heart is Christ, my home is heaven. And our mission until he comes is making disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that we get to be the people of God together. I'm thankful that you love us and you have shown how you consider us valuable and precious by giving your son for us. And I'm thankful that the victory is yours. I'm thankful that we can join you in your mission and you will use us to see people come to faith in Jesus. And I pray that it happens in Southeast Raleigh, but I also pray wherever we live that, Father, the waters of our faith rise because our hope is in heaven. And I pray that our love for one another rises because our hope is in heaven. And I pray, Father, that our neighbors will hear about Jesus. For some of us who have lived in our neighborhoods for a long time but have never talked to people about Jesus, I pray that we just say, I'm sorry, I've never talked to you about this, but where do you stand with the Lord? What's your religious background? How can I get to know this aspect of your life because I care for you? Father, I ask that you would make us a people on mission until you come. And that each and every morning we would be still and we would give our hearts wholly to you. And now, Father, as we get to sing, we want to sing the truth that Jesus is better than anything else. And we just ask that you would protect our hearts from gripping too hard onto anything on this earth so that our affections will be for heaven because you'll be there. So I want to say with 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3, I want us, I pray, oh God, to remember our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fill us with faith.